1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to David Carey Jr. about his new book, Health in the Highlands, Indigenous Healing and Scientific Medicine in Guatemala and Ecuador. Hello and welcome to the show, David.
0: Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. I look forward to talking to you about the book.
1: David, uh, before we get into all of the chapters, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project?
0: Yeah, so I first started studying Guatemalan history when I was in graduate school, um, like yourself, Ethan, obviously. Uh, but one of the things that I was really most kind of profoundly impacted by was the ability to learn a Quechiquel, a Maya language, Quechiquel in Guatemala, which really gave me the opportunity to sort of dive into oral histories with indigenous peoples and specifically Kichel speakers to understand how they frame the past and how they thought about the past, uh, to kind of start from that vantage point as opposed to from perspective of kind of U.S. or European or even you know non-indigenous Guatemalan historians. So that's shaped much of the way I approach the past. And what's interesting about this project, I sort of slowly have moved from oral histories into more archival work. This is a combination of the both of both, though much more archival in that sense. And the other piece for me that's been uh, a kind of growth point has been the ability to do a comparative history. And I really have Loyola to thank for that because when they offered me the position, they gave me a research grant without any strings attached. So it was the first time I ever got a grant that I didn't have to write for, uh, which meant I sort of could go anywhere in the world, really anywhere in Latin America. Uh, But I had always been thinking about Ecuador because like Guatemala, it has a large indigenous population. Uh, and I really started to, you know, through some of the earlier projects, was hearing kind of bits and pieces about indigenous approaches to healthcare, about epidemics more broadly in Guatemala, and was interested in that. And the other piece about Loyola offering me the job is I'm only about a mile from Johns Hopkins University. And as you know, they have a world class uh, history of medicine department. And so I was really able to kind of lean into that too. Colleagues there were just super generous, inviting me to give talks and providing a lot of feedback. Um, so that, those kind of two forces came together to really allow me to, to sort of tackle this, what is in a couple areas new for me. One, I don't have the sort of graduate training in history of medicine. And two, I'm new, I'm definitely a neophyte uh, history of Ecuador. Um, so, But that's made it really exciting for me too at the same
1: time. Well, I think you can definitely feel the benefits of of that background and that approach to this because throughout the book, I never felt at a disadvantage for not being very knowledgeable of the history of medicine sort of field and scholarship. It's a great introductory text for anybody interested in using this in a classroom setting. Yeah, thank you, Ethan. So the introduction to the book, uh, as well as the very interesting forward by Jeremy Green, Frames for readers, I'm just going to select two of the major arguments, although there's, there's several interesting threads throughout, about early 20th century Guatemala and Ecuador. The supposed chasm between scientific medicine and indigenous healing practices, you argue, really obscures the lived reality of give and take between these um, two supposedly distinct fields. And secondly, while both countries of Guatemala and Ecuador have a strong authoritarian and anti-indigenous tendencies in their history, Ecuador's regime at this time found more productive ways, it seems, of engaging with indigenous healing practices and therefore had better health outcomes could you talk a little bit about these arguments or any I missed uh, from the introduction that you'd like to highlight?
0: Yeah, no, I think you've hit upon two of the central points. So thank you for that, Ethan. And so to sort of go at them in order, what was really fascinating to me was it seems like it's always been a sort of hybrid approach to healthcare. That is that syncretic approaches to healing have really dominated uh, the sort of past in both Ecuador and in Guatemala. And what's so interesting about that is that you had an effort by the state in both places that was really aligning itself and 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 advancing ideas of scientific medicine, at the same time that it was dependent on indigenous populations for labor and and other sorts of contributions, uh, and as you also sort of alluded to there, Ethan, the 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 indigenous state relations were very different in Ecuador than they were in Guatemala. Even though they both were authoritarian regimes, the Guatemalan dictatorships tended to be harsher. There tended to be less space for indigenous peoples to sort of advance their agendas. And it was an important part of that, as you as you note, is absolutely the government structures, the individuals. But another crucial piece to that were the relationships among elites And the big distinction there was Guatemalan elites tended to be unified in their sort of efforts to exploit indigenous peoples and sort of push an agro-export economy based on coffee and some other export goods starting in the last part of the 19th century. In Ecuador, what you had was a split between coastal elites that were really in deep with the cacao economy, and that is an export base, and the Hacienda owners and the highlands of Ecuador. And those two groups are always sort of competing for indigenous labor, for kind of political control. Uh, and so that opened up a space for indigenous peoples, particularly Quichua Kichwa speakers in Ecuador, to advance their agendas and to sort of have some sorts of contributions to Ecuador on a plane that Guatemalan indigenous peoples never really had. Uh, so that was a really important distinction. And then back to your other point uh, about this sort of indigenous approaches and, and scientific medical approaches, then, of course, hybrid approaches. I didn't look much into, but both countries have uh, sort of vibrant Afro communities. And so you had Afro-Guatemalans, Afro-Ecuadorians, who also had distinct approaches to healthcare and healing. And what was so interesting about that is that, you know, both of these are steeped in history, clearly, right? And there actually was, you know, as you were suggesting, they had a lot in common. You know, there were sort of these trial and error methods that were, you know, both groups were using. There were ways in which, as they're starting to interact more and more, some of their practices actually were able to be sort of coalesced and brought together. Um, But it was also clear that there were efforts to undermine respect, excuse me, undermine the kind of reputation of indigenous healing and indigenous epistemologies. So a good example of this that sort of shows just how counterproductive those approaches were is in the 1918 influenza pandemic in Guatemala, one of the things that the government and medical professionals did was to identify the indigenous, the Maya, tooth or sweat baths, their sort of traditional way of bathing and maintaining their hygiene, as propagators of disease. And so they outlawed them. They actually tried to to destroy them in the 1930s when another outbreak takes place. The the cruel irony, of course, was they're undermining the variability of indigenous peoples to stay healthy, right? Uh, Because they wanted to have a way of demonstrating how indigenous peoples were were sort of spreaders of disease as opposed to living kind of clean, hygienic lives. And so there's ways in which race maps onto
1: perceptions of healing and healthcare. We definitely see those themes develop throughout the book, and maybe maybe it was wrong of me, but I saw these first three chapters as really looks at specific health programs, and the second two a little bit more about the discourse of racialization, although there's elements of both throughout. Um, so let's take a look at the the first chapter hookworm histories and health indigenous healing state building and rockefeller representatives a great combination of of players here and you argue in this chapter that improving individual and institutional health often involved accessing indigenous and scientific medicine as the example you just gave show in ways that eschewed the racial and social hierarchies that scientific medicine and state discourse advanced so could you tell us a little bit more about this dynamic and how it played out in the hookworm hook campaigns?
0: Yeah, so the, the other piece that's interesting, you're right, sort of you see these kind of contradictions developing almost immediately in the archives. Uh, the other piece that's really interesting about the hookworm is that it was largely advanced by the Rockefeller Foundation. And so my effort to try and understand their involvement here was an effort to make not just a comparative but a transnational history and a transnational study, and also to sort of triangulate these three different archives 3 sort of in Ecuador and Guatemala and then at the Rockefeller Center in New York and Sleepy Hollow, as a way to try and understand how these different groups are engaging with each other. Uh, And so the hookworm campaign, of course, was in many ways identified as something that was important for the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's not as if this wasn't, you know, also uh, sort of important for Guatemala and to a lesser extent Ecuadorians, but it really was driven by the Rockefeller Foundation itself. And so that's really part of their goal is to get in there. And what you see, of course, is they're bringing their own notions of race and understandings of indigeneity from the United States but also informed by Guatemalans, because one of the things that happens, the early Rockefeller Foundation representatives like Alvin Struess, like Ro- Rohan, they come and they are aligned with the Guatemalan elites. Uh, and so you get a sense of where they're information is coming from and their sort of understandings of indigenous peoples. And Guatemalan elites, of course, had long disparaged indigenous peoples and sort of identified them as the reason for Guatemala not advancing as well as it otherwise would have. So you're already seeing the sort of role of race playing out in how this public health campaign unfolds, right? But the other piece that's so interesting here is that even with those sort of backgrounds of, you know, racism coming from the United States, of the kind of anti-indigeneity coming from Guatemalans, some of the Rockefeller representatives still recognize the sort of indigenous peoples as important players in this, and as also contributors to public health, not just those who might spread disease and undermine public health. Uh, And so you see all of these different uh, kind of parties engaging in this hookworm campaign that's rolled out. The other piece that emerges here are sort of identification of other diseases, like for example, niguar, the sort of um, jigger, tropical jigger. And because that was not a priority for the Rockefeller Foundation, even though it would have been super helpful for Guatemalans, particularly in coastal areas, uh, that never gains any traction because the Rockefeller Foundation decides it doesn't want to put its resources there because frankly, they're very much interested in advancing U.S. capital, right, and and U.S. uh, investments. And so what they're trying to do in addition to hookworm is also, you know, eradicate uh, or at least control malaria and yellow fever, the sort of diseases that undermine those sorts of enterprises there, right? That is not to say that the Rockefeller Foundation didn't also have genuine philanthropic goals, right, and efforts to try and improve public health. But hopefully through that first chapter, you get a sense of the different nuances of approaches, but also those different nuances of power and the way in which as much as I would have liked to have a kind of more equally sort of researched and influential analysis of that transnational piece, it's really in Guatemala where Rockefeller Foundation has the most influence. They engage, for sure, they actually help Ecuadorans to a point where they can declare the the port of Guayaquil free from yellow fever, but they don't really integrate into the sort of
1: broader society in the ways
0: that they, in Ecuador, in the ways that they do in Guatemala.
1: I agree. It's really interesting to see those multiple racisms or racialisms, however the best way to phrase it is, floating alongside each other and coming into conflict, uh, especially with practical implications like these health campaigns. Well, let's take a look at your second chapter, Curses and Cures, Empiricos, Indigeneity, and Scientific Medicine. And here you demonstrate a complicated pattern, quote, in which political and economic elites supported the hegemony of scientific medicine, but did not necessarily want to close off indigenous healing options altogether." And you start with a really great example of Ubico's foot, if I'm remembering. So could you talk a little bit more about how both patients and indigenous healers made space for indigenous healing practices, even in the midst of supposed modernization?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question, Ethan, especially the example of Ubico, the dictator from 1931 to 1944, who actually you know, sort of cut his teeth in politics working on yellow fever campaigns when he was a governor of a state called Retaleu. And he was successful in some ways in sort of organizing that, helping to bring that epidemic under control. He kind of believed himself to be more powerful or more sort of brilliant about medicine than he actually was as a a result of those experiences. Uh, And at certain points, the Rockefeller Foundation, Alvin Struz, tried to kind of rein him in a little bit. But what's interesting about the example you give us, so he is an advocate absolutely of scientific medicine, right? He actually goes to the United States to study a little bit, learn more about it. But when he has this injury, uh, you know, injures his foot he decides to consult an indigenous bone setter, right? Someone who's operating well outside the kind of confines of, you know, of scientific medicine. Uh, And he is not sort of doing that on the sly. He actually is openly sort of publicly thanking him and recognizing him and, and, and endorsing him in many ways. Right. And it doesn't seem what I would think of was kind of almost like this cognitive dissonance. He doesn't have a problem sort of holding scientific medicine up as, you know, a sort of, one of the manifestations of progress and development and modernization and at the same time saying traditional indigenous healers also can be very helpful in healing and in this process of trying to maintain you know good health not just for individuals but but for the nation and so that Ubiko gives us a great example of that and we have a lot of the flip side too you know the the sort of anecdote i start the book with are those two catchy cow men who come from the highlands and they have already most likely and this is the thing as you well well know even from your own research in, in mexico the archives don't tell us as much as we would love them to right and so but you can tell in these the the documents that the men most likely had consulted local healers first maybe starting with even you know got kind of family medicine then moving out to you know a curandero or something and then they went to get some at least one of the men got some regional health care in chimatango they both end up in the capital at the at the hospital there And they essentially are all in with scientific medicine, even though they, of course, believe in other ways of healing. And so you see that sort of back and forth happening, both from the bottom up, as well as from the top down. Uh, And I think that's what was so fascinating to me about this sort of mix of healing. At the same time that Ubico was singing the praises of this bone setter, he's also telling his national police to go out and arrest curanderos, right? Uh, And so how you sort of make sense of that I think is what's really fascinating, that people could operate on all these different planes and levels
1: and not necessarily see them as contradictions, but rather sort of options along a continuum. This chapter made me think of nothing so much as a really common American practice of sort of bouncing between chiropractors and then more, uh, I guess, to to keep using the language, scientific medicine, uh, not necessarily to to delve into that. Um, But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how various practitioners, both on the sort of more scientific side and indigenous side, saw this bouncing between? You know, did you notice any level uh, in, in the variety of sources you work with of, oh, you shouldn't have gone to them, they only made it worse? Yeah, great, great
0: question. And I appreciate it. that's a great analogy. I like that between the sort of biomedicine and the, and the chiropractors. Uh, so again, you see it on both sides. So one of the uh, examples I talk about is this. Highland midwife, uh, hermana Katu was her name, uh, sort of all, iconic figure in, in Ketchikel oral histories for a number of reasons. I've written about her elsewhere too in, in, in greater detail, but she seems to have this incredible knack for, you know, helping pregnant women give birth, right? And then there's other sorts of healing methods that she has, and she's very successful, but she comes so well known that doctors from cap, from the capital, from Guatemala City, come and actually ask her for advice on things, right? And there's another example of when she shows up at a uh, relative's home and the, the the son-in-law had actually called for a doctor, but the daughter knew that her mana catu was you know, available. And so she goes and the doctor's there and the doctor actually says, why don't you take over here? You, you're sort of learning your process, your methods are much deeper than mine and you have a better understanding of this. So you see that coming from medical professionals. Now that was not the norm for sure, right? Those are exceptions to rule by all means. Although again, that's information we're getting from the oral histories. It's possible that it would have been really tricky to find archival evidence of that sort of, the power of those who are advancing scientific medicine to admit that maybe they needed to learn something from indigenous peoples. Uh, And then of course the flip side, you know, that you're suggesting there's curanderos who are saying, okay, yeah, absolutely, but, you know, I've sort of learned about this empirically, right, I've not gone to any kind of formal training, but they are learning some techniques from scientific medicine, right, Uh, and one of the examples is of actually just an effort to have, if not even necessarily a technique, a kind of imprimatur of scientific medicine when, the one curandero actually had a letter that was saying he could go see a doctor at the hospital in Guatemala City. And he used that because most of his patients were illiterate to say, hey, look, I've got this official stamp. They're also, you know, condoning my practice here, right? So it's clear, not just that a sort of individual curandero would want to have that mix, but clearly his clients, his patients also had, saw some value in that, right? Uh, but, you know, your, your other point about were there ways in which people's who had gone sort of too far, were ostracized or excluded. And that you definitely see, at least among midwives who had done, you know, state training and things, some of them were seen as less capable of midwives who had not done that kind of form- formal training and learned from their elders that had sort of been passed along. And so, again, you have all these sorts of complexities. And what's remarkable is for someone like me, I could imagine wrestling with this for days, you know, as I'm feeling ill and trying to figure out. And, you know, at least the indigenous peoples I was sort of reading about and had met through the oral histories, it was such a fluid motion. They would sort of go from one to the next really without much hesitancy. Right. They were willing to do whatever it took, and they had no problem moving from the extreme of one world of a traditional healer all the way to the end of like a specialized medical professional.
1: (laughs) A very, very interesting dynamic. Uh, The third chapter continues this uh, and, and to pick up with midwives again. The third chapter, Engendering Infant Mortality in Public Health, uh, Midwifery, Obstetrics, and Ethnicity, you argue that as Latin American countries tried to tackle high infant mortality rates, which was part of a global trend at the time, collaboration was key to success. You write, quote, since neither scientific nor indigenous medicine had the capacity to single-handedly cure all ailments or solve entrenched public health challenges, hybrid healthcare was often the most efficacious approach to Highland Health. So could you talk a little bit about how these hybrid healthcare sort of programs and practices developed, especially around the issue of infant mortality?
0: Yeah, that's such a, and I think you frame it really well. It's this major problem in both countries, but also internationally, across the world. Everyone's really struggling with this, including the United States, Western European nations, you know, that had sort of come along further, at least in terms of scientific medicine. Um, But one of the things that's so interesting is the kind of role, what you do see a little bit in the archives is the keen sense that midwives had of issues of the kind of public health that you mentioned, Ethan, because there were a couple of midwives who had a sort of vision about how you could reduce infant mortality. Uh, and there was one from Guatemala at the sort of turn of the century, the early 1900s. And she actually lays out a proposal of how she could serve women who are pregnant in the capital in, in Guatemala city but also how she would visit them in their homes, right? To get at the kind of public health stuff you were talking about. So much is not simply arriving at a clinic, right? And, and being treated there, but rather understanding the much larger kind of ecosystem in which these women were living. And, you know, after they had given birth, what were the sort of public health conditions like and the nutrition and all of that in the home. So th- there were midwives who had a much keener sense of that uh, than many of the, you know, uh, medical professionals did, right? Uh, and this is true also in the case of Ecuador, uh, that there were midwives who were trained through the university there and had these formal degrees and actually had at this point their positions were seen as a kind of higher status level than nurses and from in the country, largely because they had more education. And so they were wielding a certain amount of power. They too were going to people's homes, right? Even though they had this very formal education, a big part of what they were doing was, and, and a number of them like uh, de Science talks about how difficult it was to get to people's homes in rural Ecuador, right? Uh, and the sort of challenges and travails she faced just arriving at a home and also, understanding and i don't think maybe a little bit of hubris but i think it actually is is fairly kind of accurate the way she describes that she was one of the only hopes that many of those women had uh in terms of being able if they ever had any sort of complications right uh and really having a midwife to help them work through this but she was a good example of this because on the one hand she is saying even though i've got this education and it's steeped in scientific medicine We can't simply impose that on rural peoples, right, whether they're indigenous or not, that we have to sort of introduce this slowly, meet them where they are, sort of find a kind of human connection, a balance between the way we're approaching and the way they understand this health to be Um, at the same time that she says, wow, you know, midwives who are not trained in this way are really problematic, right? And she, you know, so part of that is because they are competition for her, but also she really believes that, you know, a sort of background in scientific medicine, that training was crucial for being able to help women and ultimately ideally lower the infant mortality rate. The distinction between those two examples, the woman in Guatemala, That proposal sort of dies. There's no response to it even in the archives. Whereas Ray the Science's proposal, actually, the Ecuadorian government sort of carries it out, right? Not kind of exactly as as she had framed it, uh, but she essentially was part of of a sort of larger network of care that was something that she had actually envisioned in a way. And it was getting these midwives out of Quito, the capital where they had been trained to areas and not necessarily really remote or rural areas, but areas that were definitely outside the sort of centers of power, if you will, and treating people. Uh mm-hmm. and so this sort of again, the kind of distinctions you had talked about at the top, Ethan, about Guatemalan and, and Ecuadorian approaches, the Guatemalan government mm-hmm. prints up all of these flyers to then distribute to make sure, you know, particularly impoverished women know about this as an opportunity. And in so that they don't feel like they have to or there's sort of a discouragement of them going to midwives who had not been trained within the, the sort of university or that the the scientific
1: medical establishment. <clears throat> I think in the examples you've just outlined there, we can see again how much state perception and estimation of Indigenous people and their competencies play such a big role in the success of these uh, or even the creation of these health campaigns. And you continue this on in your fourth chapter, malnourished, scrawny, emaciated indios, perceptions of indigeneity, illness, and healing. And you explore how racialized public health campaigns played out in these communities. Uh, You attribute the success or failure of these programs and then sometimes the ensuing protests and rebellions uh, against some of these more failed programs to look at how well or whether or not indigenous people had a chance to play a role in the campaign. That seems to be one of the largest deciding factors for success in your estimation. So could you talk a little bit about uh, and maybe using you a know, case example or two to, to describe how these campaigns did or didn't work and how sometimes they provoked quite a bit of outrage.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I, I like the way you're, you're framing that, Ethan, because one of the keys and so one of the things that's tricky as someone who has not studied history of medicine, but to try to speak to that field and historians of medicine uh, is sort of understanding just how sophisticated and nuanced that sort of analysis and studies, and there's a steep, really brilliant historiography there, uh, but much of what's written tends to sort of elevate the status of scientific medicine itself, right? Uh, and as you're pointing out, there are a number of other factors that I would argue are actually, as if not in some cases, more important. And one that you're emphasizing in this chapter is that of race and ethnicity, right? Uh, and the sort of understanding of how indigenous peoples approach not simply medicine, but sort of their worldviews more broadly, right? Uh, and again, here, what you're finding is that there were these efforts in Ecuador and some of them were not necessarily approached in the best way. For example, we talk about the um, the Ministry of Health official who arrives in the highland town of Otavalo and he gives actually gives a speech in Quichua, which is pretty incredible. I actually found the, the, the speech written in Quichua and then the Spanish translation in the archives there. And so immediately you would say, well, here's someone who's at at the very least sort of understands the importance of language and ideally is probably sympathetic. But then when you start to peel back what's actually in the speech itself, he talks about how you know, Quichua peoples, you know, peoples of Otavala, you don't really understand illness the way we do, you know, uh, and the fact that you're pretty dirty and that you eat insects, all of that undermines your health, right? And I sort of pick up, you know, take apart those kind of arguments and say why he may have had those sorts of perceptions. Uh and in, you know, one of these things that you find that it's sort of humorous in the archives at the end of his speech, he says, well, you know, if you want me to come back, absolutely ask me to come back. And there's never any invitation for him to return. So you get a sense of how, you know, the the message was received, to be sure. But there are other efforts along those lines. There are radio programs in Ecuador specifically reaching out to indigenous peoples and saying, hey, we want you to come to be part of the public health system. This is your system as much as it is ours. We want you to engage in that. So, and there was one, you know, public health professional who claimed that she understood the quote-unquote indigenous psychology, right? Uh, Never elaborated on that in the archives. Uh, But anyways, there is this real sense of trying to make that connection. That happens to a much lesser extent in Guatemala. And part of it, I think, as we were talking about at the very top, Ethan, is this the sort of level of racism and and, then, and and also racial violence that's so common in Guatemala. And those were just the sort of forces. I think it would have made it very hard for peoples who are not Indigenous to see Indigenous peoples for their sort of brilliance and their wisdom and all of this because they had been so steeped in that racism for so long and had lived in a society where people thought it was okay to inflict violence against indigenous peoples, right? So that makes that kind of connection much more difficult. The one exception to that is sort of in the 1940s when you have this indigenous institute established uh, and the efforts there, anthropologists and ethnologists, Guatemalans, who really oftentimes are looking at indigenous peoples as worthy, you know, and if not necessarily equals, but clearly human and having their own processes that seem to oftentimes be efficacious and effective. And so there was some understanding there in the forties going into the fifties that in fact, indigenous peoples did have important insights, right? And actually efficacious practices. And so that that could be recognized, but those tended to be the exceptions. the rule in guatemala whereas you have that example in ecuador where a public health official is out in this rural area of sicchos and he realizes that they had figured out you know a long-standing way of vaccinating themselves against smallpox and he you know to read his description of it he is blown away by this right that they're so removed from public health care elsewhere, they figure out a way to maintain their own health that was informed by this like enlightened colonial period approach to vaccination. Uh, And he wasn't pointing out the fact that it was kind of an antiquated approach. He was pointing out the fact that they had figured out how to, you know, embolden and really sort of buttress their public health in the highlands.
1: You continue on this discussion and exploration of racial prejudice and how it shapes assessment of indigenous communities in the fifth chapter, Infectious Indigenous, the Ethnicity of Highland Diseases. And I found this chapter interesting because typically when we examine or think of these Racialized and sort of white supremacy in Latin American governments at this time period, it always seems like it's a burden to have indigenous people in, in their mindset. Whereas in this chapter, it's actually quite a convenient uh, excuse or, or explanation of things. So you explore how the racialization of, med- of medicine and public discourse and health campaigns, especially around typhus and typhoid, how that, quote, in both countries, associating indigenous with typhoid or typhus, stigmatized them as disease carriers, thereby diverting attention away from each government's inability to improve rural health, end quote. So could you talk about this dynamic of stigmatization and how it played out in this country, in the government's estimation, at least, as a helpful helpful uh, distraction?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let me take just a quick moment. I, I really appreciate the sort of deep reading you've done here, Ethan, and you're sort of getting at... Uh, the kind of major arguments and points here. So that's uh, it's making this all the more enjoyable for me. So thank you. Thank you for that. But yeah, this was really a fascinating case, you know, for the reasons that you lay out there where typhus and typhoid actually are sort of tools that the government and medical professionals can use to set up a sort of smokescreen, right? And to say, hey, look, look how bad these diseases are in the Highlands, right? And we that's definitely a sort of cultural issue. It doesn't have to do with poverty or housing or lack of potable water, right? This we can easily say is how we would define indigenous peoples as disease and how they are vectors of disease. And we need to be concerned about controlling them in these sorts of environments for, for that reason, right? Um, And so that really kind of lays out pretty clearly the way in which public health, uh, the government was using public health and perceptions of public health to advance this notion of this sort of racialization and and racism uh, and justifying the sort of neglect, I mean, not sort of ignoring them altogether, but definitely neglect of, of rural areas. And part of that was not necessarily simply because of racism. I mean, both countries... Throughout the archives, you're constantly reading about how the resources just aren't there. That these ministries of health are underfunded, and they're receiving these sort of desperate letters from from different areas of the country, and they're responding saying, "Oh, we understand just how difficult this is, and what the need is, and how great the need is, but we really can't do anything now. We just don't have the resources to send, you know, kind of proper personnel and and, and medicines and things to take care of that." So, it, it's. There's definitely race and racism as a factor here, but there are also other constraints, right? Um, But again, you know, as you point out, the government could have been sort of more honest about that and say, hey, look, we understand that poverty actually is the issue here or that, you know, uh, not having potable water is the issue, right? And this is why we can't quite deal with it, but it's not the fault of indigenous peoples themselves, right? This was just a much better, sort of easier way for the government to frame that and maintain those kind of hierarchies of power? Because so much of that sort of was the learning I was doing through this history of medicine is that it was oftentimes about power, right? Who had access to resources and how are they going to maintain that access to resources? And public health plays a kind of crucial role in that.
1: Yeah, we you uh, as you've explained here, it is a, a smokescreen for other deficiencies the government would not address, like why, why are we spending so much on the Guatemalan military and not so much on, on Guatemalan health? And you continue this again with uh, the sort of framing that uh, becomes a lot more relevant later in the 20th century as sort of economic development becomes a bigger public concern. The sixth chapter, Prisoners of Malaria, a lowland disease in the mountains, shows how both Guatemala and Ecuador made public discourse around malaria again very racialized but in a way that's distinct from other places not in america how they seem to think and talk about uh the disease you argue that quote officials did not decry indigenous as vectors so a difference from the last diseases we talked about instead they focused on what they framed incorrectly as malaria's transmission in the highlands to deflect attention from structural economic disadvantages that brought it there to begin with so could you talk a little bit about how officials thought about malaria and sort of how that contrasts with the rest of Latin America, and how this shapes public health responses to the disease?
0: Yeah, again, a great question. And so the, here you have this sort of obverse of what I'm arguing the other in the previous chapter about how they're saying, yeah, absolutely, indigenous peoples are vectors. They're you know, problematic with typhus and typhoid. In this case, they're saying, well, actually, they're not, right? This is a different sort of thing going on. So again, you have this sort of nuance, which fits in with that you know, being able to say, yes, we're all in with scientific medicine, but we also appreciate the sorts of contributions that curanderos and curanderas and midwives and and others can make here, right? So you see that playing out here, their ability to kind of frame different diseases distinctly and use them for different political purposes, right? Uh, And so, yeah, you sort of hit on what's so crucial here, right, Uh, and this is something that, is also argued by historians of medicine, Dr. Randall, for example, Randall Packard, who writes about uh, malaria. And I have, as a quick sidebar, I had this very humbling moment when I, I sort of realized I was presenting a, this very chapter uh, to the history of science, uh, excuse me, history of medicine uh, department and colleagues at Johns Hopkins University. And about midway through, I realized that the, the, the person Randall Packard had literally written the book about malaria. was sitting right to my right. And I'm imagining I'm mispronouncing Quinine. And he's like, who is this joker? I can't believe, you know, he's in this giving this talk. But at any rate, uh, he was uh, super generous in sort of contributing and offering to read my stuff and and give me great feedback, as were so many of those colleagues. But he makes the point, getting back to what we're talking about. That this was another way to say, okay, this is a disease that's problematic, absolutely, but we we are not going to address. We're going to again use it as a way to kind of obscure the impoverished situation, uh, particularly indigenous peoples, right? And this is not just happening in Ecuador and Guatemala. You know, he's studying other places of the world, and he's making these observations, and so you can see the kind of almost the politicalization of public health and disease and the way that it's used so differently, right? And so that you see, again, a sort of a top-down approach to how they are uh, approaching malaria. You can have the flip side, right? So there's an example I I write about there and this municipal mayor who's talking about how he's supposed to, you know, part of Guatemala dictatorships was there was all this labor that you were supposed to be able to, to give whenever it was needed. And he used malaria to get out of that labor. He said, well, we've been struck by malaria in this community and no one is healthy enough to send to you to do the sort of work that you're asking us to do, right? And so at the other end of the kind of political spectrum, at the lower end of political power, other people are using disease and even feigning, I suspect, disease to be able to get out or resist
1: forced labor mechanisms. It's a very interesting dynamic. And I wonder if closing here, you could think through, uh, or sort of talk through some of these apparent contradictions of scientific medicine is supposed to be replacing indigenous health, but actually we can find curanderos and indigenous ideas all over the place. And supposedly there's one discourse about how indigenous people are vectors, but actually we can find some counterexamples to that. You tie all this together very well in your conclusion, looking at later and subsequent health policies and programs in these two countries. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you made sense of all of these contradictions.
0: Yeah, a great question. I actually did, had a sort of personal experience with this uh, where I had this, this sort of crazy experience when I was in graduate school. I was kind of a, a victim of some violence uh, and and went to Guatemala later that summer uh, and was really just feeling out of sorts. And I had this process that was known as an Oyunique, uh, which is a soul calling. And so a curandero, actually, you go through nine different days of this and what the curandero is doing is essentially inviting your soul back to your body the belief is that your soul's actually left your body and that's why you're really struggling uh, sort of in your day-to-day activities and things uh and so there's this process in which he calls upon called upon my own ancestors as well as my ancestors and yet you know the the sort of moonshine was part of this and the candles and all it um it was really a powerful experience and i would not have been able to articulate this well before him, but I did feel like that was crucial to my healing. Like that process was what helped me to kind of become whole again and, and sort of recover uh, in that way. And so at the same time, when I was back, even in Guatemala in the archives, uh, and I guess perhaps this is going to be slightly embarrassing, if I apologize. I had developed an infection in my eye uh, because and the archivists were convinced, oh, it's all the polvo you're working with, right? Um, and there was one doctor who thought it was simply that I had dandruff in my in my eyelashes, uh, but it turned out to be an eye infection. And so I went to uh, an ophthalmologist in Guatemala City, right? It didn't occur to me for that to go to a curandero, for example, right? Uh, so in that way, I was starting to understand, oh, okay, I can, I can kind of balance these things too when I'm kind of thrust into this situation. Uh, so that helped me a lot in terms of being able to write about this and think through this, and not necessarily have to decide to come out on one side or the other, uh, but rather be comfortable with what might to be might appear to be kind of contradictory approaches on understanding them as operating on this broader continuum, uh, and essentially sort of using all the tools available
1: in your toolbox, if you would. <clears throat> Well, the book certainly benefits from that ability to handle rich complexity throughout. And, and I would certainly recommend it, both for people trying to understand this material more more generally, and also for, I think, for a classroom setting. It's a great, uh, you do a great job of situating and introducing a lot of these ideas, topics, and settings for, for the reader. Thank you. To close, before we go, could you tell us what are you working on next or now?
0: Yeah, thank you. It's such a uh, a fun question that, you know, as you know, I know you, you like to talk about your own research too and where you're headed with things. So I'm working with some colleagues in Canada and Guatemala and we're trying to understand the effects of COVID both on medical professionals as well as indigenous peoples, right? In Guatemala as well as in Canada. So it'll be this broader project. We got a wonderful grant from uh, the Canadian government. And so a couple of the things that we're finding here that kind of relate to this project are kind of stem out from it was that there were indigenous, and I should say more broadly, Guatemala, like Ecuador, was hit really hard by COVID. Many deaths, You know, vaccination rates were very low, partly because of a distrust of scientific medicine. We'll talk about that a little bit in the book. But the other piece that was coming out of here is some communities actually did pretty well. They Many of them isolated. I think some of them isolated soon enough that they were able to maintain decent public health. One that was on the shores of Lake Atitlan actually was so confident in their ability to heal and, and more importantly, perhaps to kind of stave off or you know preventive medicine that they had the Pfizer, they had access to the Pfizer vaccine and turned it away. Uh, and most people in Guatemala had access to Sputnik, which wasn't nearly as effective. Um, and so I was talking to this indigenous midwife about this, and she was explaining to me a couple things. One there was a kind of receta, like a recipe of of natural plants that was, you know, being sent around indigenous highland towns. And that would be something that people would take, you know, the, the curanderos and the midwives would make this uh, natural medicine and then distribute it. But she said the other piece that was so crucial was the tooth, the, the sweat bath, the, the indigenous sweat bath. That was really important for helping people to maintain their health. Uh, and so, and there is some scientific evidence for that, you know, the, the heat, you know, the heat in there kills off different spirites and things. And so that actually does sort of align with scientific medicine, but she also made the point that only if that sweat bath was made out of adobe bricks, the sort of mud and, 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 and um, hay grasses put together, that was the only type of sweat bath that was effective. And there were other sweat baths that were made out of concrete blocks. Those were not good in terms of preventive medicine. And so there's this really strong belief that indigenous approaches to healing were really crucial to maintaining where they were successful to maintaining people's health. Uh, And so that was one of the pieces that kind of come out of this broader study of COVID-19 and how it shaped people's lives. And we're all trying to do this comparative with the influenza epidemic in 1918 in these two countries also as a way of kind of shedding shedding light on that.
1: That sounds very interesting. And the the rootedness, the material aspect of that of that health practice really jumps out to me. You know, well, hopefully, you'll be willing and able to present uh, whatever work comes out of that on New Books Network as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. <laughs> well,
1: thank you so much for your time, David.
0: And thank you very much, Ethan, for the invitation. I really enjoyed our conversation.